everyone, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I investigate something that piques my curiosity, and then I teach it to you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Um, so we'll start off this time with me apologizing. I mean, us. We're in this together. Us apologizing for a late episode. I know it's been three weeks since our last, uh, oh, no. our last upload. We'll do better. After this week, we'll be back to our every two-week thing. Um... I also, you know, will we'll say a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to whoever listens to this podcast. Exactly. Even though since it's mostly just our family, we'll see you on Christmas anyways. Um, this episode is going to be about the 1925 serum run to Nome, or as uh, the press had called it, the Great Race of Mercy. Um, if you were a kid in the 90s or... The parent of a kid in the 90s, you might remember uh, a film called Balto. Yes. A popular anim- popular animated film uh, from 1995. Um, but the real story is it's more inspiring and obviously more complicated sure. than, what, than what they show you in a children's movie. Um, so it's all about... Made by Universal Studios, by the way, not Disney. Really? Everyone thinks Balto is a Disney movie. It's not I, a Disney movie. I did movie. think that. It's okay. not a Disney movie, no. Well, you've already taught me something, so... <laughs> Good I guess start. we're done. <laughs> Good start. Uh, no, I have to teach everyone something. Okay. Not just you. Right, right, right. So, you know, in the film, Balto, a, you know, dog named Balto, um, is shown as the lead dog of, of a sled carrying this antitoxin serum we'll talk about um, to fight a diphtheria outbreak, and they have to go through, you know, blizzards and hazardous terrain and save the dying children. It's very dramatic, and I mean, all that's true. Mm-hmm. It's a little misleading, but it's all true. Um, there's just a lot more to the story. Um, Balto was just one dog out of the hundreds of dogs to participate in this uh, dog sled relay, um, led by 20 different mushers. So uh, there's a lot to get into. Absolutely. Okay, well, how about you teach me something? Awesome. Okay, so since dog sledding is so central to the story, I thought we should start with a little history of dog sledding because I was just wondering about it. That's all. Okay. That's how this podcast works. I'm like, hey, that's interesting. Where did that start? And now I'm going to include it because I thought it was cool. Um, so sled dog breeds probably evolved in Mongolia as far back as 35,000 or 30,000 years ago. That's a ways um, back. Yes. And scientists think that humans migrated north of the Arctic Circle with their dogs about 25,000 years ago. Okay. So dogs have been in the Arctic for a while. Um, and we used to think that the origin of using dogs to pull sleds in the snow was... I don't know, maybe around 3,000 years ago? Sure. Um, but researchers found the remains of domestic dogs dating back to like 9,000 years on what is now called Zokhov Island in northeastern Siberia. Um, at that time, though, 9,000 years ago, Zokhov Island was actually connected to the mainland. Sure. It wasn't an island at the time, that is. It, so it kind of explains why. I don't, I don't um, remember my dates of the last Ice Age very well. Does that... Last, up with that. The last Ice Age ended roughly 10,000 years ago. Okay. Or started 10,000 years ago. No. 12,000 years ago. Agriculture was 10,000 years ago. Okay. I think the last Ice Age ended 12,000 years ago. This Great. might be so wrong. Okay. We'll but have to... <laughs> the point is, this island wasn't connected to the mainland by, like, ice or something like that. I don't know. Okay. It so this mysteriously to connected to the mainland, and that's important. This episode is not focused on the geography of 9,000 years ago in Russia. Okay, so, got it. Sorry about that. Um, 
the dogs were found, like, so they found different types of dogs. They found dogs selectively bred, selectively bred as uh, sled dogs, and some that were clearly selectively bred as hunting dogs. Um, they found old sleds and stuff that they dated back to 7,800 or 8,000 years ago. Okay. Um, and, and so today we know about sled dogs that the, like, for optimal thermal regulation, they should be, like, 20 to 25 kilograms. Um, okay. The ancient sled dog remains they found were, I mean, extrapolating back to when their bodies were not dead and and, and changed. Anyway, sure. they have ways to extrapolate from yeah, yeah. from the remains they found. Um, they were all between uh, sixteen and twenty five kilograms in life, so perfectly aligned okay. with our sled dog. Um, other other morphology, you know, bones and stuff, and the way their hips are laid, all that stuff. Um, is congruent with things that we think are good sled dog breeds now. Um, so, and then the other type of dogs they found were like 30 kilograms, like uh, significantly bigger. bigger, yeah. And they appeared to have been crossed with wolves. And the suspicion is that they use them for hunting polar bears. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, because, and, and at death, the heads of those dogs, the, the more hunting breed dogs, were removed. Oh. And um, they thought... We don't know, but we think it was probably a ceremonial thing. Maybe they were buried with their hunting master. Maybe it was a for honor or whatever. Sure. Um, but but the, the point is that there were two clearly different types of dogs that were this old, and we we have very good evidence that one of the types was was for pulling sleds uh, nine thousand years ago. Um, a twenty nineteen study uh, found that the dogs that were brought initially into the North American Arctic from northeastern Siberia were then later replaced by dogs um, coming with the Inuit during their expansion, which was 2,000 years ago, or beginning 2,000 years ago. Um, the Inuit dogs were more genetically diverse and had more like physical variation than the earlier dogs. And so today, sled dog breeds are actually the last descendants in the Americas of the pre-European dog lineage. And other dogs okay. are more closely related to this European lineage. So the sled dogs um, are pretty far removed in the hierarchy. Uh, the how related they are to sure. like all other breeds of dogs. Um, dogs are all one species though, so they're still all pretty <laughs> right. pretty closely related. It's just, um, just within you know, the, the relationships the though they yes. have a higher degree they of diversity. Much longer ago. Yeah, not diversity divergence. Yeah, yeah. Diverged, yes. Um, so there was, you know, basically two main kinds of sled dogs. Um, one that was kept by coastal cultures and one that was kept by more interior, interior cultures like the Athabascan First Nations, um, people. And so, um, the interior dogs were the predecessor of the Alaskan Husky. Okay. Russian traders that came to the Arctic and followed the Yukon River inland in the mid 1800s. They took the dogs that they found from the interior um, to breed with their dogs because these dogs were stronger and better at hauling heavy loads than the Russian sled dogs. So they purposely took these interior dogs and bred them with their dogs to make heavier, better at dogs, better at hauling. Um, And then, you know, decades went by, new technologies happened, airplane, trucking, snowmobiling, dog sleds weren't needed anymore to deliver the mail because in the 1960s, they're, you know, still using dog sleds to deliver the mail in a lot of the Arctic. I guess that makes sense, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, recreational mushing kind of came into place to maintain this 
the tradition, purposely just doing it like to maintain the tradition, not anymore for like a necessity. Yes, exactly. Um, And so now they're thinking, okay, well now we want to go fast. We're racing. We're running. We're doing it for fun. We don't need these big stocky dogs anymore. Because it's no longer a weight load type of conversation. Right. So then Americans and, and, you know, those in in Alaska then started to import sled dogs from the native tribes in Siberia because they want their lighter, faster dogs Mm -hmm. to breed with their heavier dogs and um, create faster, faster mushers. So it's really funny. The Americans are now seeking out Russian dogs to make their breeds faster, just like an inverse to the Russian traders coming over to the Americas and taking these heavier dogs to breed with their dogs. So they've created some kind of interesting hybrids. Um, (laughs) So the uh, Samoid, the Alaskan Malamute, Siberian Husky, which Siberian Husky is this kind of mix of breeds Mm -hmm. that we've got now. Um, so yeah, Malamute, Husky, Samoyed, and Chinook are like the most well-known and popular dogs to use to pull a sled. Um, so that's dog sledding. Yes. The other kind of, uh, big element to our story is, you know, the antagonist, if you will, of our story, which is diphtheria. Diphtheria, um, is an infection caused by, uh, Carinobacterium diphtheriae. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Symptoms start like two to five days after you're exposed and they kind of come in gradually. You'll get a sore throat and fever. Um, throughout history, diphtheria was called the strangler because the bacterium releases a toxin that destroys your tissues. And in severe cases, all the debris and residue from those destroyed tissues makes like a gray or white residue that coats the mouth and throat. Okay. Um, which, you know, severe cough and as the name suggests, can block airways and cause death. Um, other symptoms people experience due to the bacteria toxin are large swollen lymph nodes, myocarditis, inflammation of the nerves, which can lead to paralysis, kidney problems, bleeding problems due to low platelets, you know, just cool stuff. Cool stuff everyone totally wants to happen. Um, (laughs) so fun facts. Uh, diphtheria was first described in the 5th century BCE by none other than Hippocrates himself. And the bacterium was identified in 1882 by one Edwin Klebs. Um, not as fun of a fact. Oh. Before vaccination was invented, yay vaccines, um, diphtheria was actually one of the most feared childhood diseases. It was super contagious. I guess still is. Um, sure. Spread through the air and through direct contact. People stayed infectious for two to three weeks. That's a long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it had about a 10% death rate in the general population. Okay. But that number is kind of misleading because we're mostly worried about kids. So, right. So, I'm assuming the so, mortality rate yeah, is much higher. Children under five had a 20% mortality rate. Yeah. Um, that's bad. That's really bad odds. It is, yeah. Um, so they were obviously the main concern, along with elderly immune compromised people. Healthy adults didn't often die of diphtheria. This sure. is a they're the ones that brought the average down. Um, correct, correct, correct. Um, now it's rare diphtheria in the developed world due to widespread vaccination rates, um, but it's been shown that's happened many times. Little pockets reemergence of diphtheria in the developed areas of the world um, if the vaccination rates dip. Sure. 
So how do you treat diphtheria? How, let, well, okay. Let's, uh, it's still kind of the same thing, but in 1900, how did you treat diphtheria was probably um, a better question because they really only had the one way. So as I mentioned, diphtheria bacteria produces a toxin that destroys your tissues. That's the symptoms you experience are all as a result of this specific toxin. Primary thing that's happening. Yeah. So the answer is to make an antitoxin. Yes. Great. Yes. Um, and the procedure is super basic, actually. Just uh, similar to when we made the anti-venom months ago um, when I talked about the venom yeah. episode. Um, very similar. You heat kill the toxin. You put it in an animal, like a horse or whatever. Horse makes antibodies, and we take those antibodies, and that's an antitoxin. Like, it's a, it's a simple, in theory, type of thing. Sure. Obviously, is this what makes up the actual term serum in this case? Yes. Okay. Yes, the serum is the antitoxin. Yeah, but I'm trying to say, like, there's a distinction between... I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is there a distinction between serum and... and vaccine at this point i'm assuming there is yeah, the, this isn't the vaccine this is That's a right. treatment okay antitoxin serum is a treatment not got a it. vaccine not a preventative measure a a treatment got it um so in 1890 we're gonna say this right shiba saburu kitasato mm-hmm, and emil von Bering um proved it worked by injecting guinea pigs with this heat treated diphtheria toxin and they also did it with goats and horses and showed that the antitoxin made from serum of immunized animals which is why the shorthand is just serum mm-hmm. um could cure the disease in non i'm putting immunized in quotes immunized animals okay. um it didn't quite work at first bearing used i uh, used the antitoxin for human trials in 1891 but it was unsuccessful um so a few more years of research went into this and then they successfully um, developed a horse-derived antitoxin in 1894 and started producing it. Um, Van uh, von Bering won the first Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1901 for this work on diphtheria, which is cool. That's cool. Um, I don't know what happened to Shiba Sabu Kitasato. That was much easier to say. The second time. Yeah, that was much easier. Um, uh, but clearly, he he does not get recognized. Um, so. Now that all that background stuff you probably didn't really need to know is out of the way, uh, let's finally talk about what happened in 1925. Um, So, this story takes place in Nome, largely in Nome, um, which is a city on the Seward Peninsula, which is like the central eastern coast of Alaska. Central eastern coast. Center going north-south. Center center in the up-down coordinate axis yeah and then on the far eastern eastern coast on our east west axis okay i mean does that not make sense i i just had to sit and picture it for a bit but yes okay i mean it's hard it's a podcast it's not a visual medium yeah a map of alaska would be useful i spent a lot of time looking at a map of alaska because turns out i've never spent much time looking at a map of alaska before yeah i'm still trying to picture the fact that it's on the it's not coastal it's on a peninsula, and the peninsula is coastal, but yes. Nome itself is not on the coast yeah. directly. Because I'm just thinking of the east side of Alaska, you know, being pretty squarely connected to Canada in my mind. Oh, maybe I meant... 
<laughs> at the Western Coast. This is a disaster. Is it a typo? I don't know. I kind of have a picture in my mind, and I think I, I think that's a typo. The Western Coast. I like Hold that's on, got audience. to be correct. We're, We're gonna Google to it. Yeah. I better Last fix minute. this. No, we've got to figure this out because I I'm now I'm I'm envisioning that is not how you spell gnome. There's no G. This is not a garden gnome. Well, but <laughs> did they know where it is? Because that's how I know gnomes. There you go. Okay, Western. It's West exactly what I was saying, but the opposite. Okay. So in the central, in the north-south coordinate, that's still yes. correct. Good. And then the western coast of Alaska. This makes Way extremely more sense? more sense to me. I am so sorry, dear listener, but I'm not going to edit that out because maybe you laughed. I Good. laugh whenever it's spelled gnome, G-N-O-M-E. So gnome Alaska is spelled N-O-M-E, just that's so everyone now knows. Again, it's not a visual medium. Fine. So, so we figured out where we are. Finally. We did. Yeah. And it's late fall. I okay. mean, the real question is, did the dogs know where they're going? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay. You'll find out. It's late fall of 1924. It is. We got started in 1924. Um, and Dr. Curtis Welch is the only doctor in Nome. Uh, him and four nurses ran a 25-bed hospital that served the town and all the outlying communities. Okay. Dr. Welch noticed the first case of diphtheria in December uh, of 1924, but he just thought it was tonsillitis. Sure. Um, I mean, mostly, the... mostly because he wanted it just to be tonsillitis. Well, you know what I mean? Like, anyways. I hope so. so then there is the deaths of two um, Inupiaq children. I hope I said that right. And Inuit. Um, there is. A whole the whole surrounding area, you know, First Nations populations living around there. So sure. the deaths of two um, children, and then and then there was kind of an unusually large number of tonsillitis cases, and then he thought he knew what was going on, but again, didn't really want to know. Um, he really didn't want it to be true. But in January 1925, he was examining uh, a Billy Barnett, a three-year-old boy, and he saw a definitive sign of diphtheria. I mean, the kid was brought to the doctor with high fever and weakness, and then the doctor saw a whitish-gray mucous membrane in his throat and nasal passages. Yeah. And what he knew, which, and you now know, that this is a distinct sign of diphtheria, and he kind of had that moment where he had to accept that this was really happening to him, uh, and the town, obviously. Sure. Um, this was, like, the worst timing ever, because Gnome was super hard to get to in those days. I mean, probably still is. But in those days, <laughs> yeah. it was super hard to get through, especially in the winter. Uh, that I know it's on the coast, but the seaport freezes over in yeah. the winter <laughs> um, from November to July. I would almost assume that in that Alaskan region that travel over land is probably easier in the winter and travel over sea is probably easier in the summer is my guess. Well, I mean, the, the seaport's iced over, like I said, all the way to July. Wow. Um, November to July. Remember that thing we talked about yeah. where the oceans take longer to lose their yes. heat and then longer to absorb it in it's the summertime? It seems like a long time. It but, is. Okay. So that's inaccessible by water, really, from from those times. Um, it was accessible by land and possibly air. That's a, that's a sure. big fat maybe. So why is this such an issue? I mean, it happens every year after all. Kind of like It's not like they didn't know it was going to happen. Here's the issue. Over the summer of 1924, Dr. Welch had realized that the town's whole supply of diphtheria antitoxin was expired. Hmm. Um, he had ordered a new supply from the health commissioner in Juneau, Alaska, but the port closed for the winter before the serum arrived. 
So he was already so ahead he of this, knew, basically. Yes, but but he but, knew they had nothing. Right. If and then all of a sudden he started noticing outbreaks. So he was like, No, is yeah. <laughs> it's gotta be happening, you know. Um so he didn't want to risk using the expired antitoxin. Um and then little Billy Barnett died the next day. Um but more infections popped up, more kids got sick, and now Dr. Walter's kind of deciding the cost-benefit analysis. Like, we just need to try the expired serum and see what happens. Uh, so a seven-year-old girl was diagnosed and treated with 6,000 units of the expired antitoxin, but died the same day she was diagnosed. So that didn't work. So he uh, basically, Dr. Welch, called an emergency town council meeting, insisted on quarantining the town. He sent a radio telegram to all the major Alaska towns, to the territorial governor, to the U.S. Public Health Service. So his telegram to the health service read, an epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I am in urgent need of 1 million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. Mail is only form of transportation. Stop. I have made application to Commissioner of Health of the Territories for antitoxin already. Stop. There are about 3,000 white natives in the district. Hmm. Um... That's what he said, okay? I don't know exactly what that means. I tried to Google what a white native is, and I think it just means Europeans. Yeah, I suspect that probably just got governmental pull or, or political sway at that time, right? Uh, y- yes. Yeah. Um, I think white natives me- meant, like, like Europeans or, like, you know, literally just white people because there was definitely over 10,000 people around Nome um, due to the native Alaskans. Right. Um. So this is just how people talked in the, in the old days. It's not great. Um, and it's so 1 million units, by the way, does not mean 1 million doses. No, no, no. Just so we're all clear yeah. on this, like there's a certain number of units you give to people depending on their weight. So he asked for 1 million units. That's not 1 million doses. No. I thought that might be a little That was more of like him predicting the total weight of the population. That he was going <laughs> to need to treat. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the thing is, the thing is, like I said, there's over 10,000 people. If he's saying there are 3,000, quote, white natives, ugh, um, there's 7,000 First Nations people-ish yeah. to be concerned about. And uh, the native Alaskans had literally no innate immunity to diphtheria. So Nome had, had seen how this plays out during the 1918 flu pandemic. Um, the death toll there was awful. Some predicted 100% mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Basically, so during the flu pandemic, in, in one 8D period, 162 Native Alaskans died in Nome and around 10,000 in the surrounding, uh, or sorry, 1,000 in the surrounding yeah, area. Okay. I was going to say that's all of them, but okay, got it. This is, this is like of the 2,000 that died in the state. Like wow. it was, it was, uh, there's lots of stories I didn't write here about, you know, Children waking up to their whole village dead and they're the only ones left alive and dogs eating people. Yeah, just like lots of terrible... The flu pandemic ravaged First Nations peoples in the Arctic. Wow. Clearly hadn't had as much exposure to Europeans and still hadn't gained immunities to any of these European diseases like diphtheria. So, I mean, Dr. Welch kind of knew. He knew if it got into the First Nations population, it could... Again, it could be 100% mortality. Right. This could be devastating. So... Um, he had 20 more confirmed cases by, you know, late January, 50 more that he thought might be a case. I mean, he knew that without the antitoxin, everyone was just going to die. So he 
I was working with the U.S. Health Service on a plan where the U.S. Health Service kind of gathered all the units of antitoxin they could find um, in the western states. Sure. And gathered them all, collected it all in Seattle. Okay. They loaded on a ship heading for Seward, Alaska, which is not on the Seward Peninsula with Nome. Oh. It's very confusing to me. Okay. Seward is on the south of Alaska. And not on the east. Not anywhere. Oh, no. Okay. Either way, this narrative makes sense because the issue is that it's on the south tip and we need to get it to the coastal tip in the center of the the state. Um, But here's the thing. The ship wasn't going to leave until January 31st. And that was just the first leg of the sailing trip. And they knew this is not fast enough. This isn't going to help. Um, So fortunately... Uh, Chief Surgeon Don or Dr. John Beeson found 300,000 units of anti-serum at the or of the antitoxin serum at the Alaska Railroad Hospital in Anchorage. Anchorage is right by Seward on the southern um, end of Alaska. Okay, and it's just north. It's just north of Seward. Um, so either way, ship. This we're gonna find a way to get this thing a whole like a, a very long way. It's and, gotta and make it from clear. the south tip to yeah. the to the western tip. <laughs> um, but because of the mountain and seacoast geography, you can't go like as the crow flies. You literally have to go up to the center of Alaska and make a hard left. And go straight basically west, yeah. Yes. Okay. Um yeah, you need to go all the way through the interior is the only way to do this. Alaska's geography on the coast is... Too problematic for travel. In. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So Mark Summer, superintendent of the Territorial Board of Health, thought we should use two of Alaska's fastest dog teams to get the antitoxin to know. Um, Leonard Sapala, who is like a very famous musher, and his lead dog Togo had won the All-Alaska Sweepstakes three times. So they're like, he needs to be one of our guys. Sure. He's going to be the hero of the story. Okay. I'll just tell you. And Togo. Not Balto. Not Balto. Leonard Sapala and Togo. Um, but there is a lot of people in government who thought the dog sides are going to take too long and that you should fly it to Nome. That seems reasonable, too. Um, so Carlbin Eelson had completed the first airmail flight in Alaska on February 21st, 1924 from Fairbanks to McGrath. I don't know where McGrath is. I don't know. I, I didn't look that okay. one. Okay. But the point is that they had just done one first ever winter flight in Alaska. Right. This was highly experimental. Uh, the distance is definitely larger in this case than Fairways to McGrath, wherever it is. Um, we have to remember we're talking about 1920s. The, the pilot's not inside. He's going to freeze and die. The instruments will freeze and stop working. Yeah. The, like, it, it just doesn't work. The other problem is the only available aircraft in Alaska, because it's got to be an aircraft that starts in Alaska. The, right. Otherwise, the distance from Washington Wherever. State or Seattle is too, you can't do that in those days. So yeah. you got to start in Alaska. And the only aircraft in Alaska at the time were water-cooled World War I planes. Water-cooled. Were known to be not reliable in cold weather. Yeah. So. I mean, at that point, it'd be ice-cooled pretty quick. Yeah. So, <laughs> and drop like a rock. Yeah. Uh, ice cube, I guess. A nice, that's um, right, yeah. So, in the end, they voted in the dog sled relay after lots of arguing, though. Um, and they contacted Sapala, Leonard Sapala, 
And so the original plan, which involved only two mushers, one from Nome and one from a town called Nenana, which is a which is a place they could get the serum to by train. So they could do a okay. large distance by train. Sure. Pick it up in Nenana. Um anyways, one would race from Nome and one would race from Nenana. They'd reach each other in the middle and then and then whoever came from Nome would turn around and go back as fast as they could, basically. Um okay. Right. Okay. So, governor the governor believed he had a better plan. We should use, he thinks, a relay of mail carrier mushers along the trail. So that would allow for rest and everyone would be fresh and it would be faster. So the Northern Commercial Company had this network of telephones and telegraph stations in roadhouses along a lot of the mushing trails already. Great. For different other, like for the mining and the and the air. Yeah. Or the mail carriers, like just for all those other kind of industrial reasons. Um, so it's perfect. The drivers could be contacted through the roadhouses. The mushers were going to wait at their assigned roadhouse. They're going to be contacted when it was their turn to get ready. You know, it was going to, it was going to be great. But they changed plans after Leonard Sapala had already left Nome. He was racing from Nome. Oh, okay. Um, he drove towards the rendezvous point in the middle, but his route, unfortunately, bypassed all the villages with the telephones and telegraph systems. So he didn't know what was going on. He didn't know what he was supposed to do. And the only hope was that someone would be able to intercept him. <laughs> we'll see. Okay. Um, so during the relay, the other thing to remember is that you're carrying a ton of glass vials. Yeah. And this is 1925. There is no bubble wrap and there is no styrofoam. Um, packing peanuts. So uh, this doctor in Anchorage packed them by layering it really tightly in a crate with layers of quilt. Okay. And then all the mushers had to periodically stop and warm up the serum so that it wouldn't freeze. Right. They didn't want it to freeze. It'd probably destroy it in that time. So it was a uh, it was tough to keep it safe, and it was a, it was a big challenge. Um, so let's get into the relay itself, though, because it was a massive undertaking, a marvel of planning, really, how it worked out. Mm -hmm. So it involved 20 mushers who were mostly Native Alaskans, um, over 150 dogs. The total was uh, 1,085 kilometers. Okay. Total time, 127 outer hours and 30 minutes. Oh, that's... Okay. Fast. So most like that's, that's a lot less than I would have expected. Okay. Yeah. So most of the legs of the relay were planned to be about 40 kilometers. Uh, apparently 40 kilometers is generally accepted as like an extreme day's mush. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So just so you have some kind of idea yeah, of I have, what's normal. Cause it's I, it's I didn't been a know long time normal. since I've, uh, you know, mushed <laughs> for yeah. a full day. Yeah. So I had forgotten the exact amounts. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So as I was kind of saying before, the start of the journey, the first leg was by train. So train conductor Frank Knight picked up this serum in Anchorage and his train went north to the interior of Alaska um, to a little town called Nenana, as I was saying. So this is January 27th and Wild Bill Shannon gets mm. the serum. He had a team of 11 Alaskan Malamutes. He met the train around 11 p.m. at night on January 27th. Um, he got... Uh, cold. <laughs> Temperatures <laughs> ranged from about minus 40 to minus 52 Celsius. 
Oh, balmy. Uh, <laughs> at 3 a.m., he, you know, took a four-hour rest and then set off with only eight of his 11 dogs. Um, a, a lot of dogs died. Let's just throw this out there. I'll, I'll, th- th- it was cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy himself, while Bill Shannon had some severe facial frostbite, so he mushed for 84 kilometers and passed off on January 28th to Dan Green at Tolovana. And no, you're not supposed to have heard of any of these small Alaskan towns. I'm just going to say them. Okay. Um, the temperatures warmed all the way up to minus 34 degrees, but there was a 32 kilometer an hour wind. So that was unpleasant. Um, so he ran 50 kilometers to Manly Hot Springs and passed off to one Johnny Folger who ran through the night and made good time. He was an Athabascan native. Just so I learned this, just so you know, the Athabascan natives were the original inhabitants of the interior region of Alaska. And that's the guy who invented coffee. <laughs> Somehow that seems, you know, um, probably not true, but oh. I don't know. Okay. So um, Johnny Folger then gives it to Sam Joseph at Fish Lake. And he was a Tanana tribe native. Um, he had a team of only seven Alaskan Malamutes and, um, he made really, really good time. Like I said, he did 42 kilometers and only two hours and 45 minutes. So he passes off. This is now January 29th. He's passing off to another Athabascan native called Titus Nikolai, who goes, who goes 55 kilometers. And let's see. Where do we pass off? We pass off at some place called Nine Mile Cabin to Dave Corning. Um, so then a few more, I'm not going to say all, but a few more, you know, Native Alaskans, a few more mushers. We're looking at, you know, the nicest weather at about minus 40 degrees Celsius. That was about the, yeah, that was about the, the best temperatures we got. Um, most of these mushers are using a mix of Huskies and Alaskan Malamutes. Um... One of the mushers was a newlywed. I don't know what his fiance thought about all of this, but <laughs> he, obviously all of these guys were, were heroes locally for doing something like this. Sure. Um, so we get kind of halfway there and then we see uh, more severe blizzard temperatures roll in. And um, so, you know, you're seeing minus 50 as minus 53 as a, as a pretty normal temperature for these guys to have to deal with. I don't understand how that's possible. Um, (laughs) some of them, you know, like the ones that made really good time, um, 16 kilometers an hour. Yeah. Uh, so pretty amazing, I think. Um, so once we get the serum about 300 kilometers from Nome, then all of a sudden, Sopologist shows up. So a guy named Henry Ivanov had the serum on January 31st. Um, so Henry Ivanov was apparently a part Russian. Sounds like it, yeah. Inuit? Okay. First Nations person? Um, anyways, so Shak Tulik was the place that originally... Um, well, a place that Sapala was supposed to have made the handoff on this change plan, but he didn't know it. Right. So about one kilometer out of Shak Tulik, um, Ivanov had to pull over and settle a fight between his dogs. Apparently that happens. With dogs mm-hmm. are all pent up on their harnesses. Um, and so while he stopped, 
then Leonard Chappelle just happened to come upon him. Right. In what appears to be a stroke of magnificent luck that I don't think you could have counted on. Um, so then Leonard Chappelle has the serum and he is going to go a long way with it. So his lead dogs were called Togo and Fritz. He had a team of 20 Siberian Huskies, um, which he actually dropped off in pairs at various roadhouses to be used as reinforcements for other tire teams for the return trip. Cause he had a quite full team and you'll I'll talk about it later, but he had a kennel of dogs. Like he, this was his job. He bred sled dogs. Mm-hmm. He had lots of dogs. Um, so he had left Nome trying to intercept the serum at Nulato, which was the original plan. So he had traveled the 69 kilometers to just outside um, Shak Tulik and then had to turn around basically and go back. Yeah. Um, it's dark. It's minus 34. And he had to risk the 32 kilometer sea ice crossing between Cape Denby and Point Dexter in a blinding blizzard. Oof. So they relied on Togo. They relied on his lead dog to basically smell their way through. Um, and then found an igloo, stopped, warmed the syrup up, or serum, syrup. Wow. Nope. Warmed the serum up. Okay. Serum and up. Combined into syrup. syrup. Very Don't, sweet. Yeah. yeah. Um, they tried to wait out the, the blizzard, but it just kind of never seemed to get better. So... They took off again. Um, so he traveled 146 kilometers on this leg with the serum. But he wow. also drove 274 kilometers from Nome to Shak Tulik in the first place. So he went over 420 kilometers on this relay, which is the longest distance run by over 300 kilometers, right? Right. Um, on one day, he covered 135 kilometers in a single mush. I don't understand how he made such... Amazing time, but, yeah, wow. but that was really, really impressive. So he passes off to um, to one other musher who then passes off to Gunner Kaysen. Gunner Kaysen is um, the guy who drove Balto. Okay. So he got the serum in a place called Bluff. Are we sure? <laughs> He had lead dogs, Balto and Fox. It's very popular to do a, uh, a team lead, I've learned through this research. Right. Um, so he was using a team of 13 of Leonard Sapala's backup dogs. He had to go through chest deep snow, glaring ice. He couldn't see Balto basically ran the sled. Right. Um, a message was sent into the next village to tell Kaysen to wait out the storm and the village. Um, and then the story goes that due to the severity of the storm, Gunnar Kaysen um, missed the village because Balto right. just kept going on the main trail. Um, all the stuff, all the stuff you see in the movie was true. The set, the sh- like the sled did flip. The serum did fly through the snow. He did have to go on hands and knees and find it, and it wasn't broken, thankfully, you know. And glass from a bottle is used to make the northern lights. And- <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying the whole movie is true. You just said the whole movie. <laughs> oh, did I? No. I'll have to play back the tape because I'm not sure about that. Um, so oh. he arrives in a, in a town village area called Safety. Oh. And... Um, about 2 a.m. on Sunday. But he was supposed to stop, right? 
Mm-hmm. So the thing is, is the guy who is going to take over for him wasn't ready. Wasn't ready. He was asleep, and um, Gunnar Kaysen saw that he wasn't ready and just kept going because you know you have to wake up and you have to get the sled. Like it's going to take time. And right. Kaysen didn't want to wait and take that time. So he kept going for the final 40 kilometers. So he went 85 kilometers total. Balto, you know, runs at the last leg and he's the hero, even though, like I said, Togo went 400 and something kilometers, but, right. but whatever. Um, but the thing is, uh, maybe that's not what happened. There's some rumors that Gunnar Kaysen just wanted to be the hero and deliberately blew past the last guy in the relay, like a, <laughs> nope. This, I'm doing it. I want to be the guy at the finish line, kind well, of. I mean, if they have a guy named Bluff working the whole thing, then it's not. I mean, it's not named Bluff. It was a place called Bluff. See, I know these names are a little confusing. <laughs> so he gets to Nome around 5:30 a.m. on February 1st. Okay. So January 27th at 11 p.m. to February 1st at 5:30 a.m. By noon, February 1st, they were administering the first doses of the antitoxin, and the official death toll was only about seven people. Okay. But <laughs> with a big asterisk besides, they have no idea how many Native Alaskans died. It I was see. not the case that a Native Alaskan would go tell the white man government that someone in their family had died. Like, just who knows? Okay. A big who knows on that one is all we're going to say. And I'm sorry to say that I don't really trust that the government tried too hard to figure it out either. Sure. So, you know, let's just say who knows. But we do know the serum undoubtedly saved thousands of lives. Um, and so that was 300,000 units. Uh, the doctor wanted much more than that. So they did go through with shipping the serum from Seattle. Right. From Seattle it lands in Seward. Okay. Which again is right near Anchorage. So they pretty much did the same thing. They had another, they had to do another relay in mid February to get the rest of the serum to the town. There's like no information online about the second relay. I don't understand, besides the fact that most of the mushers were the same and did it over again. But there was no information about it and no one talks about it because it was less emergent. I don't know. Okay. I guess so. Yeah. So. This, this serum race helped spur the Kelly Act to pass. It was signed into law on February the 2nd, which allowed private aviation companies to bid on mail delivery contracts, mm. which forced technology to improve pretty quickly within the next decade. And air mail routes were established in Alaska. Um, so as I was kind of saying before, the last mail delivery by private dog sled under contract took place in 1938. But the last U.S. post office dog sled route closed in 1963. So later than you would think. I was pretty surprised by the 60s on that. But what I'm hearing here is that a lot of the other infrastructure was in place. Mm -hmm. There was just still always some areas that needed the dog sled. Yeah. Okay. So what happened to Balto? Balto spent some really sad years being sold to circuses and sideshow acts and uh, his team. Like it was, it wasn't great. Um, but luckily when they performed in Cleveland one time, some guy in the audience just like, was like, we can't have this. He's a hero. And him and the city of Cleveland, Cleveland raised money and they bought Balto and all of his team and they lived out the rest of their days at the Cleveland Zoo. Had a nice, nice life there. And, uh, when he passed away, he was mounted and placed on display in the Cleveland, Cleveland Museum of Natural History. And he is still there today. Really? He did a tour Ooh, for a little, little while ways away back from to Alaska. Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. like I said, though, the dog that 
really deserved center stage was Togo. Um, so Togo has an interesting story. He was born in 1913. He was named Togo, which means puppy in the northern Sami language. Um, initially, he did not look like he was going to be a sled dog. Uh, Togo was ill as a young puppy, and Leonard's father's wife kind of nursed him back to health. And then he was just too bold and rowdy and difficult, mischievous. He didn't seem suited for sled dog, so Chapala gave him away to be a pet at age of six months. But after a few weeks, he ran away. He actually jumped through the glass of a closed window and then ran the several miles back to uh, his original kennel. So um, Chapala was actually really impressed by that. He's like, you know, you're pretty devoted. You're pretty loyal. I guess, you know, I'll keep you. <laughs> you don't want to be away, so I will keep you kind of thing. But he's still a puppy. And he continued to cause a lot of trouble. Like he would break out of the kennel whenever Chapala took the team out on runs. And he would attack the lead dogs on oncoming teams. Um, quote, as if to clear the way for his master. Um, but one day he attacked a much bigger Malamute and was viciously mauled. So he had to recover. And when he did, he had stopped attacking other teams' lead dogs. Hmm. This uh, apparently was a valuable experience for him because it's difficult to teach a lead dog to keep a wide berth of oncoming teams. Apparently that's something that's really difficult in dog mushing. And so this success <laughs> successfully yeah, taught wow. Togo that. Okay. Um, so when he's eight months old, he gets his first chance at a sled dog. So Leonard Chapala had been hired by a client to transport him, basically, to a newly discovered gold claim. Cool. So that was going to be an overnight round trip for Leonard Chapala. He basically was like, I don't have time to deal with Togo running around bugging my team. So like tethered up inside the kennel, told the employees, don't like let him free until we're way gone. Um, didn't matter, of course. He broke free of his tether and jumped the fence and he got his paw caught and and the kennel handlers came and got him loose and Togo ran off, following the team's trail the whole way, followed him through the nightfall. He slept near the cabin where they were spending the night and the next day finally Chapala spots him, which like he's like, oh, okay, that's why my dogs have been so upset this last like day. <laughs> um, and so on the return trip back to the kennel, Chapala's like, like Togo is causing too much of an issue. I can't stop him trying to play with my dogs and messing up my mushing. So he puts a harness on him. Um, now, when it comes to sled dogs and working dogs, you don't generally start them this young. It's just really okay. It's just, just generally, they're just not mature enough, and you don't start them that young, even physical maturity. But here's what happened. He said, "I have to put him on a harness." Of course, he does great. He um, kind of like. Well, one thing I thought was funny is one of the issues is that he kept trying to, like, Togo, when he was not on the harness, kept trying to lead the whole team into the bushes to chase reindeer. So <laughs> I can just kind of imagine that. It just sounds funny. Um, so Togo instantly settled down in the harness. And as the run went on, he kept being moved up the line. Okay. And at the end of the day, he was actually sharing the lead position with a dog named Rusky. Um, so Togo ran 120 kilometers on his first day in harness which is absolutely unheard of for an experienced sled dog, especially one so young. So it was just like, it was amazing. Um, so Paola called him an infant prodigy and said, I had found a natural born leader, something I tried for years to breed. Mm -hmm. So something I learned is that the characteristics of a good lead dog um, are that it's smart, courageous, and self-confident, 
but also has to have like a defiant and rebellious streak. And this kind of explains what's up with Huskies. This explains why these kind of sled dogs can be such a kind of a stubborn breed. Sure. Because basically they're going to be required to disobey their master's like musher's commands if they sense like a dangerous situation. Like your musher's going to say go and they're like, no, we're going to die over there. Like I'm not going. But that's, uh, that's bred, not as much trained, right? You need to have sure. that natural that instinct. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one example of this is during crossing of the Norton Sound. So this is all during the, uh, purportedly during the Sierra moment, they're crossing the Norton Sound. So that was that area of sea ice I was talking about. Um, so Shapala orders Togo to turn because he sees a crack forming in the ice. Um, so Togo turns, but then immediately stops and kind of like jumps backwards onto the rest of the team. So then Sapala goes to the front of the team to get mad at Togo and notices that there is a open water channel less than six feet from Togo, which Sapala couldn't see from his sled. Right. So again, Togo saves them all from drowning by, by defying him. Um, but on the same crossing, this is a, the really cool story that I was so impressed by. So when they arrived on the shore of the Bering Sea, um, they were on an, an ice floe and it was too far from the land for them to cross and Chapala couldn't jump it. So he hitched Togo to his own lead. He hooked an anchor in the ice and he threw Togo across to the other shore. So sled dogs are so smart. So Togo knew to dug, like dug in the anchor on that shore and Chapala started pulling the ropes to pull the ice flow closer to shore. Um, and then the water broke. So, or the water broke. The, the line. Ice. Oh. The line broke. So, Chapala and the team are stranded. Togo's on the shore. Togo jumps in the water. This is without instruction, apparently. Jumps in the water, grabs the broken rope in his mouth, spins around a few times so the rope is wrapped around him, and just pulls the whole ice floe to shore and saves them. Wow. Um... Again, without instructions. So I don't remember that in Balto. This dog is amazing, and he deserves to be the hero. Um, by the time of the serum run, he was 12 years old. He'd been lead dog for seven years. Um, this this story definitely caught the eyes and attentions of the nation. They went on tour in 1926, Sapala and Togo, and some of the rest of the team. But, you know, Seattle, New York City, New England, California, all over. Um, so... Chapala actually began a Siberian dog kennel in a partnership with someone named Elizabeth Ricker in Maine. Um, Togo basically was allowed to live at this kennel and enjoy kind of his life of luxury when he retired. Um, he had a lot of puppies. Mm -hmm. They obviously wanted to breed him a lot. Right. Um, so basically, this was the founding of the modern Siberian Husky. Cool. Um, known then as a Sapala Siberian sled dog. In 1928, this, this lady, Elizabeth Ricker, um, wrote and published Togo's Fireside Reflections. And they did a little book tour where Chapala would dip Togo's paw in ink and sign copies of the book. And um, Chapala ended up saying, I had never had a better dog than Togo. His stamina, loyalty, and intelligence could not be improved upon. Togo was the best dog that ever traveled the Alaska Trail. In 2011, Time Magazine named Togo the most heroic animal of all time. Okay, but you know how before I said that Balto was not a Disney film? Yes. Disney did make a film. Oh. In two years ago, December 2019, Disney released a movie called Togo. Oh. Starring Willem Dafoe as Leonard Chapala. And, fun fact, 
principal production on the film ran from September 24th, 2018 to February 2019 in Calgary, Alberta. Really? Togo was played by a dog named Diesel, who was a direct descendant of Togo 14 generations back. Cool. I thought that was pretty cool. That was really cool. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to finish this off real quick by talking about the Iditarod, because there's this persistent myth that the Iditarod sled race is like, an event run to commemorate the 1925 serum run, but that's not true. <laughs> the Iditarod race is named after the Iditarod Trail, um, and it's not connected to the Gnome serum run. Okay. Uh, but I'm curious anyways, so let's just, let's just talk about it. Um, so first, the Iditarod Trail, which is known historically as the Seward to Gnome Trail, is a 1,600-kilometer trail system in Alaska that crosses mountains and valleys and just all sorts of treacherous terrain. Um, it kind of began as like a composite of trails established by the Alaskan native peoples. Um, but then there is the discovery of gold around Nome and then, you know, all through the Klondike. And, yeah. and basically thousands of people started to uh, pass over the route in starting in about 1908. That's when the roadhouses and dog barns sprang up. Um, you'd find them every 30 kilometers or so. Right. Um, between 1910 and 1912, 10,000 gold seekers came to Alaska. They eventually mined $30 million of gold. Wow. That's a lot. The trail is actually named for the town of Iditarod, which was an Athabascan village before becoming kind of the center of Inland Empire's Iditarod Mining District in 1910. So I guess that was probably the main company mining gold, the Inland sure. Empire. Sounds really sinister. Maybe anything called Empire is sinister. Yeah. Do you think that's just the case? Star Wars really did in that name. <laughs> yes. Um, by 1918, um, well, World War I and kind of the declining gold fever meant that people stopped using the trails so much. Basically, people think it would have been forgotten completely if it hadn't been needed for the CRM run to Nome. Okay. Um, the town of Iditarod, as well as most of the other little towns that had sprung up, basically became ghost towns, which I have to believe is common in gold rush areas. Oh, yeah, for Tons sure. Tons of gold gold rush areas, I'm sure, have these little ghost towns dotting the, do. dotting the landscape. So, I mean, um, Yeah, Alberta has a few. Oh. Or at least one. It's on the... Interesting. It's on a highway. We've been there. It's oh, I've been there with my family. I don't think you've been there. Ah. Yeah. So the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race is an annual long-distance sled dog race, as it suggests, that they run in early March from Anchorage to Nome. So it is. Mushers will have their team of 14 dogs. At least five of those dogs have to be on the tow line by the finish. Um, they usually take about 8 to 15 days to cover the distance. It actually began the race in 1973. Um, it was kind of like to test who was the best, like the best sled dog musher. Um, it kind of evolved into a more highly competitive race as, as the years went on. Um, so there's generally blizzards, there's generally terrible temperatures, gale force winds. The coldest temperature ever recorded during an Iditarod race was uh, minus 73 Celsius. Great. So these days they do a ceremonial start in Anchorage. And then they do a real start in a town called Willow, which is 120 kilometers north of Anchorage. Um, oh, okay. They actually had to move it there because of too little snow in a town called Wasilla, which surprised me. But I guess hmm. when it's that cold, sometimes it just doesn't snow. 
Um, sure. Yeah. So basically the trail runs from Willow up something called the Rainy Pass of the Alaska Mountain Range into the interior and then along the shore of the Bering Sea and to Nome. And it's definitely not the route that they took for the serum run. No, it's it's quite similar, but they didn't run all the way from Anchorage. Got it. Um, so they run through a lot of, you know, urban centers, but mostly like First Nations towns. Um, and, and it's kind of, um, it's a huge deal in Alaska. Not so much the rest of the world, but um, like the people that race in it are local celebrities and... Um, Every year, it's more like more than 50 teams, about a thousand dogs, even though they're mostly Alaskan participants. They have had participants from 14 different countries. Um, the first foreign winner was Martin Busser from Switzerland in 1992. Um, Libby Riddles was a long shot, but she became the first woman to win the race in 1985. And then the next year, Susan Butcher became the second woman to win the race, and she won three more times. Wow, great. Um, Mitch Stevie set the fastest time ever for the Iditarod in 2017. Eight days, three hours, 40 minutes, and 13 seconds. And he also became the oldest to ever win it at age 57. Good for him. Um, so they run, as I was kind of saying before, they, this isn't a serum run. This is to keep a tradition alive, basically. This was mainly started as, like, this is important to Alaskan cultural history and we want to maintain it so we should have this big event every year then in 1997 a man named norman vaughn thought okay that's cool but let's have an annual relay to commemorate this yarn run let's do that okay so norman vaughn he was an antarctic explorer and a 13 time i did a rod racer he organized an annual kind of relay mush from nainana to nome again that's the actual route that they went it's about 1400 kilometers the way that they run it for this relay. Um, today they call it the Norman Vaughn Serum 25 run. And uh, they actually designed it to have the same intent as the original life-saving mission, which is rescuing the people of Atlanta, or Atlanta, Alaska. <laughs> that would be cool, but you know, yeah. um, from some deadly diseases. They joined a program, like a statewide program called Shots for Tots. And so they organized the relay mushers to deliver immunizations by dog sled to the villages along the route. Um, they're kind of the main goal is to have a hundred percent immunization rate in children between zero and two through this program. Cool. And so, I'm assuming that that one is more in a relay style than in a, this is a race. Relay style. This isn't a race. This is a, a commemorative charity run. event. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so on that note, I'll, you know, I'll conclude the episode on the diphtheria outbreak and the serum run and the dog sledding and the Iditarod race and all the other things I managed to cram into that episode. It was a little packed. Um, next time on Teach Me Something, I'm going to talk about fire Ooh. in the context of comparative mythology. Ooh. Sounds like fun. And I've heard through some trustworthy back channels that we might have a guest host in the next few episodes. So I'm going to be excited for that and hold out for that. Uh, one more time, I'd like to wish everyone Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year's. All of those things. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I'll just say a sincere thank you so much for listening to Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm -hmm.